We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by local journalist, Angelica Ong. Always good to be with you, Gavin. And on the telephone from Taijong by regular commentator, Donovan Smith. Hey, great to be back. And tonight we'll be discussing Vice President William Lai transiting in the United States as he heads to Honduras. The KMT announcing a prominent address for its new US liaison office, the opening of a Chongqing War culture park and library amid calls for unity and also criticism, and lawmakers voting to pass new drunk driving laws. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan this week. And Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Tuesday told reporters that the government is continuing to work towards zero coronavirus cases, despite the Omicron variant making that a wee bit more challenging now. Because, of course, the Central Epidemic Command Centre has now reported over 300 domestic cases so far this month. Over 250 of those cases are related to an outbreak which originated at Taoyuan International Airport earlier this month, but that it has now led to related clusters springing up at social clubs, factories, a bank, a steakhouse and the Far Glory Free Trade Zone. Now, according to the health minister, zero cases is still the goal. But while blocking the virus completely is a challenge, the government still needs to buy time to ensure more people get vaccinated and to prepare better disease prevention measures and hospital responses. Now, the United Daily News on Thursday ran a headline that screamed 60% of confirmed coronavirus cases here are linked to restaurants. However, the health minister is stressing that the epidemic command centre is not yet considering a ban on on-site dining as such a move will affect people's livelihoods. The epidemic command centre though is urging people to avoid visiting crowded places or spending any time in enclosed spaces with poor ventilation during next week's Lunar New Year holiday. And health officials are also advising people to minimise the number of people they dine with and follow disease prevention measures if they dine out. So, Donovan, there we go. We've got these clusters just popping up quite alarmingly, but the government's still working towards zero coronavirus cases. Yeah, and no, I find this quite interesting. You'll notice that it was at, once it started getting into the triple digits uh, in May last year that we went into level three lockdown. So it, it smells to me a little bit like they are going a little bit slower this time. Now, that's possibly because Omicron doesn't appear to be quite as deadly. But I also think that there may be a feeling that the public has a certain amount of fatigue. There were some statistics released where they they talked about the number of people during Level 3 last year who were um, using the QR code system. And it was something like over half a million. And then in the fall, after Level 3 had been lifted, it had dropped down to people using the QR code when they visited places, dropped down to below 200,000. So there, and that does seem to be played out sort of anecdotally in my neighborhood. I've noticed that this, there, there was a marked drop off in people bothering using the QR codes, um, and there does seem to be a slight uptick. But still, it does seem that most people are ignoring them. So, you know, I, I wouldn't surprise me now that you know Chen Shui-jung has admitted that it would be extremely difficult to, to bring this under control completely. But you, as you noted, buying mo- as much time as possible to make sure that the population gets up to 80% um, double vaccinated, which I believe they're pretty close to 80% now on single vaccination, and some are a little over 70, I believe, for double vaccination. So they're not too far off actually achieving those aims. So uh, trying to keep it slowed, ideally get it to zero. I have a sneaking suspicion they don't actually think they're going to get it to zero, but if they can keep 
keep up the pressure to keep the transmission rates as low as possible for a while while we get more um, vaccination to get the vaccination rate up higher then you know they, they may achieve that goal that seems to be a little bit more realistic I just think this is absolutely nonsense uh, the, with the high vaccination rates um, and uh, by the way I feel like a lot of the remaining people who aren't vaccinated are more holdouts there are plenty of vaccines around um, I'm double jabbed, can't wait to get my booster. And I saw a really interesting chart um, from Our World in Data uh, from the United States uh, for uh, December 4th, showing that <laughs> if you are double vaxxed, the chances of you dying in any given week uh, from COVID in the United States, where it's so much more serious now, is one in 100,000. And if you are uh, double vaccinated, boosted, then that becomes like one in a million, something like that. Um, so those are struck by lightning odds. And so many people in Taiwan are dying for all sorts of reasons, on scooters, uh, unsafe traffic conditions, uh, all sorts of things, all sorts of reasons. And uh, our economy really cannot take another round of, of anything. And it's so true about the fatigue. Um, I went to a department store food court and they put up those uh, plastic dividers and uh, people were just moving them around like they were arranging them like a pair of quote marks around the table so that they can talk to each other and see each other and we always knew those things were security theater anyhow and I think right now the key is to get the vaccination rate up and keep the economy open and uh, I'm you know I work a lot with the offshore wind industry and we desperately need people from abroad to come in and do the work that will help Taiwan's uh, infrastructure. We are undergoing a power crunch. So uh, I think it's essential now that we change course. W what worked before was great, but now we need to pivot. What about the restaurants, though, Angelica? I mean, the United Daily News screaming headline, 60% of domestic confirmed cases are linked to dining at restaurants. Well, I absolutely think here is where the inconsistency is coming in because you have the offshore wind industry where they are still, like we're talking about billion do US dollar investments, having extreme difficulty getting workers in from abroad, even with the quarantine, even with uh, everything. Um, but meanwhile, people are like traipsing off to restaurants and they're not actually, you know, uh, you know, people are not doing the QR codes as assiduously anymore. And they absolutely aren't really respecting um, the social distancing. I don't know how you can. I think if you keep the restaurants open, you're not going to be able to stop Omicron. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's probably true. Um, and I think that kind of gets to the, the, the earlier point that the, you know, the the CECC wants to get that vaccination rate, uh, you know, as Angelica noted there, you know, it, w once you've got people double vaccinated, your, your your chances of of dying become minuscule. And so they're targeting that. And so it looks like they will get quite quickly to that one, that first dose, that second dose, you know, they're, they're already, I believe, in the 70, past 70% now for the second dose. So, you know, as Angelica noted, there's going to be holdouts, but it looks like that holdout percentage of the population is, is below 20% in Taiwan. Most people who get the first jab eventually will get around to getting the second one. And, of course, uh, the government's also promoting boosters. Now, here in Taichung, very specifically, it's all age 65 and older and special centers, and they're alerting them and telling them to come in. So... 
you know, it, it does look like they're pretty, they're getting quite close to getting to their, their vaccination goals. Uh, obviously, their goal isn't to get to 100% vaccination because it just won't happen. But getting getting the majority to 80% on the double uh, on the on the double jab, I think, really is quite a, a feasible option. And of course, Angelica, the government hasn't ruled out a return to the level three coronavirus alert if the number of local infections rises to levels seen last May. But a survey by the 104 online job bank released this week found that 70% of companies want all their employees back in the office and they really don't like this work from home thing. I think Taiwan can definitely do better on work from home, but that's a separate issue from whether or not we should go back into level three. And I absolutely don't think we should uh, to try and maintain the COVID zero policy. Now, of course, if uh, uh, truly the numbers start to surge in a way that looks like it might overwhelm the hospital capacity, then all bets are off, of course. But I don't think COVID zero is a viable policy anymore. Taiwan, Taiwanese employers should do better on work from home, just as a matter of course, for people's quality of life and to get with a new economy. I think the culture of um, being optically correct, demanding um, employees show up just to be observed by their bosses is really toxic. Uh, but I think that's a separate issue from what should happen from this point on forth. And of course, that survey, Donovan, found that employees, well, 65% of them actually preferred a hybrid approach where sort of certain parts of the company would come in one day or one week and then certain parts of the company should come in the other week. And 30% wish to work in the office and 5% actually want to work exclusively from home. Yeah, what I find interesting is actually both on the employee and the employer side, the percentages of people wanting to work from ho- entirely from home is very low. On the employer side, 0.3% supported working from home, whereas 29% supported uh, hybrid uh, home work. And then 70% wanted, uh, on the employer side, they wanted the employees in the office. And if, when employees are only at 5%, I think compared to overseas, that's really quite low. Um, but I, I've noticed here there is definitely a dynamic where there is a, a more of a social atmosphere, I think, to a certain degree here, and a lot more socializing among employees. So I, I can see how uh, a higher percentage here wouldn't mind having the uh, the hybrid or or working working from the office than than perhaps in some countries overseas, certainly not all, but than some. And of course, Angelica, we're, we're largely talking about local companies here because of course multinationals don't seem to mind Absolutely. their employees working no. from home. Yeah, I, I think you know that could that should change, but that is a bigger conversation. And not for now, because we have to move on. Anyway, Vice President William Lai has been having a rather busy week as Lai jetted off on Tuesday to attend the inauguration of Honduran President-elect Xiomara Castro, which took place earlier this morning, Taiwan time. He began his first overseas trip since he took office in May of 2020 with a 24-hour stopover in Los Angeles on his way to Honduras. Now, Lai was greeted in Los Angeles by American Institute in Taiwan Chairman James Moriarty, who boarded Lai's plane shortly after the charter flight touched down. 
down there. He also held a virtual meeting with American congressmen while in Los Angeles and was joined for those talks by Taiwan's top envoy in America, Xiaobi Kim. Lion Xiao held talks with 17 US lawmakers in several groups during the video conference, which reportedly lasted for 10 hours. Now, those talks touched on bilateral trade relations and threats posed by China. And according to Taiwan's top envoy in the US, the American lawmakers expressed concern on issues including Taiwan's security, its national defence, bilateral trade and economic ties, global supply chains and also supporting Taiwan to join international organisations. Lai met with Honduras's new head of state prior to her inauguration and reports are saying that Castro thanked Taiwan for its support and stated that the two sides will continue to maintain a good relationship in the future. However, despite speculation that Lai could meet with US Vice President Kamala Harris on the sidelines of the event, Washington ruled out that possibility completely there, Angelica. I, I don't think that's a huge surprise, and um, maybe it's prudent. Um, I know that Taiwan always, um, since this uh, administration anyhow, we always try to push the envelope a little bit. Uh, we all know very famously President Tsai called Donald Trump to congratulate him, and he picked up the phone. That was a huge advance. Um, but, you know, sometimes um, sometimes it's just a little bit too hot. Um, uh I feel like our vice president uh, is in very strong position to perhaps be uh, a real top, I think, contender for the presidency in a couple of years. And so going to the U.S., meeting with lawmakers, um, going to Honduras, it's all very, very well and in line. And I don't see not meeting with Kamala Harris as too much of a disappointment. Yeah, I, I you know I, I think that this was a, a an opportunity for the U.S. to to really signal something by allowing the two to meet unofficially. I think that would have been a, a good way to handle it. Uh, but obviously, they're not going for it. I don't see uh, Kamala Harris as having much of a, a past of being particularly pro Taiwan, not necessarily anti Taiwan by any means, but. I haven't seen her being particularly vocal or strong on, on supporting Taiwan uh, in the past. So I, I guess I'm not terribly surprised either. Um, now, there was one kind of curious incident, and I don't really know if there's anything worth reading into it or not, is that uh, Lai was originally supposed to meet with uh, the pre- president-elect Castro, and there was going to be a ceremony, and there was going to be all kinds of um, coronavirus kit donated and they were going to have a, a meeting and a photo op and all of that and then it got cancelled and then it, while he was at dinner he was suddenly informed that it was back on and then they had a quick seven minute meeting with the president elect now that could just be bad scheduling overruns or just incompetence on the part of the people planning these you know, the, the activities or it could be sending a message. My suspicion is it was just a little bit of chaos on the Honduran side, but it, it does, considering how sensitive the situation is and how touch and go it's been for for the last couple of months, uh, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that, that people will pay, pay, pay attention to, uh, considering the circumstances. Of course, Angelica. Do, I mean, do you think the public is actually paying attention to William Lai in Honduras and transiting in America, or do you think the lack of eggs on supermarket shelves are overweighing this problem? Well, I think you can't divide the party like that. I'm sure the there are a lot of very engaged uh, people who are paying attention, but I personally um, was not. <laughs> I, I I think that it is just uh, one of those things where 
uh, of course, um, you know, it's great. He's getting out there. Yay, Taiwan. And I think it's, it's, it's healthy that he, you know, um, we can acknowledge these things. Yeah, Honduras might switch their recognition, et cetera. And uh, that doesn't mean Taiwan doesn't is not a partner. I think we really need to normalize the fact that our, our most important partners, all of, almost all of them, it's soon to be all of them, are people that don't recognize us diplomatically, but we build something real together. And that's the path forward for Taiwan. And so as not to be outdone by the government talking up ties with the United States this week, while the vice president was in the United States, the KMT earlier this week announced that it's now selected a location for its soon-to-be-opened U.S. liaison office. Now, according to the KMT's deputy director of international affairs, Eric Huan, the office will be located at 601 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Huang is being cited as saying the office provides a view of the capital. All very nice. And if you look at the building's website, what describes the location, as featuring a private arrival driveway, modernised lobby, state-of-the-art fitness facilities and an unmatched rooftop entertainment space and terrace with panoramic views of Washington's landmarks. Now, the KMT's Deputy Director of International Affairs said an initial group is now operating out of the office and will begin formal operations after completing the registration process in accordance with the United States' Foreign Agents Registration Act. Here in Taipei on Wednesday, the head of the KMT's Department of International Affairs vowed to stage a comeback for the party in the United States, and Alexander Huang unveiled a specially designed plaque for the Washington, D.C. liaison office, telling reporters that the plaque's design has been authorised by Chairman Eric Jew. Now, Eric Jew had reportedly been slated to travel to the U.S. sometime this month or in early February to open the office, but Alexander Huang is now saying that trip will likely take place in spring, when the coronavirus situation is expected to improve. Now, there still has been no word from the KMT as to who will serve as the party's representative to Washington. So a nice address there, Angelica. Oh, cool. Yeah, totally. I guess the KMT still has some money so they can ride off into the sunset in style. You know, I really don't know why this is, you know, super important news. I guess they're trying to stay relevant and uh, get some attention. But their real problem isn't isn't Washington, isn't with Americans. The Americans will really deal with whoever is in power in Taiwan and uh, if the KMT can't see a path back to relevance uh, here on the island, I, I don't see what they do in the United States, whether or not it's a fancy office, uh, will have any bearing on anything at all. But of course, Donovan, they can walk out of their office and be at the Capitol in a matter of minutes. Yes, and apparently uh, they made a big deal about the fact that apparently a lot of uh, power players, you know, senators and and representatives and their staff and all that hang out in the neighborhood so that they can go and hang out at the local restaurants and, you know, bump into key important people. They made quite a big deal out of that. Um, but there's a few things that I find really kind of uh, odd and kind of unusual about this. One is that the KMT is definitely not in good financial uh, straits right now. They, uh, something that I haven't seen reported on the English press, but uh, I've seen a, a fair bit in the local press, is that, you know, with the KMT, they, before when they had all, you know, they were billed in the international media as the richest political party in the world, then, of course, the um, ill-gotten gains law came in, which the KMT themselves had for years said, yeah, 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 we've got to do something about this. Well, finally, the government did. So once all that money was locked down, the problem is, is that back when they had all that money, the KMT used plum party positions as kind of patronage favors. 
and as rewards for loyalty. And so they had this giant bloated payroll. So in spite of the fact that they now have, they still have a large amount of money in government subsidies and uh, donations from uh, individuals and donors, so they still actually have a decent income, they've got this massive number of people that even once they fired them, they still have to pay them severance, they still have to pay their pensions, they still have, so the, the, the massive liabilities that the KMT faces and the amount of money that they've had to borrow to keep afloat has been kind of shocking. Then you add on to that, they're selling off local uh, local uh, headquarters, you know, in places like Zhanghua and Nanto. They're selling off their headquarters and moving into small offices. And these are expensive bits of property here. So how they can afford these fancy new digs in the U.S. is really quite remarkable. Now, as Angelica pointed out, they have to make themselves relevant here. Now, back when Maingio came into power, the KMT had a pretty strong relationship with the U.S., and memorably in 2012, after Ma had shut down the office because he figured presumably that they had a good enough relationship, they didn't need it, in the 2012 election, when Tsai Ing-wen was running against Ma, uh, the, you know, she was running in her first presidential election, the U.S. sent out former diplomats uh, to criticize Tsai and kind of meddled in the election there because they still didn't trust the DPP after the Chen years, and they were uncertain about her, whereas at the time the U.S. wanted to get close to China and didn't want anything to disturb the trade relationship there. And, of course, so they wanted Ma to continue because they considered him a safe, pay, uh, safe pair of hands. But now it's almost the complete opposite. The U.S. doesn't trust the KMT anymore. And so I, I think the KMT's got their work cut out for it. I re really don't see how, when they oppose the importation of, say, American uh, beef and pork with ractopamine in it and these kinds of things, that doesn't have a negative knock-on effect, plus also being viewed in the U.S. now as being much more pro-China, it seems like I think they're going to get kind of a frosty reception in some quarters. Yeah, the KMT has totally done a 180 on ractopamine, and um, that really hurt their credibility, and their pro-China turn just could not have come at a worse time. The U.S. has realigned. I think the um, when we're back in 2012, um, they're still pretty complacent about China, and their uh, whole idea is Taiwan, just don't rock the boat, don't do anything, and uh, Ma ying was Mr. Don't, don't rock the boat, right? Um, but I think Tsai did something truly remarkable, which was she really managed to be so moderate and so even keeled while uh, making Taiwan very appealing as an international partner, just as China is starting to become more erratic and aggressive and threatening, um, that I, I can't see the U.S. going back to the KMT and we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And President Tsai Ing-wen this past weekend attended the opening ceremony of the Chungjingguo Cultural Park and the Chungjingguo Presidential Library in Taipei. And there she called for unity among Taiwanese people in the face of Beijing's military and political pressure. And speaking at the event, Tsai touted Jiang as being remembered as a staunch anti-communist who never caved in to Beijing despite the military and diplomatic challenges that he faced. And she went on to say that Jiang's position remains an important reference for Taiwan today despite the different cross-strait context as the country faces sustained military and political pressure from Beijing still. And she also called on people to respect differences and engage in dialogue about disagreements to uphold what she called Taiwan's identity. Now the opening of the park has been surrounded in somewhat controversial manners as the Transitional Justice Commission had called on the park to be renamed to avoid what it called being a token of authoritarianism. While the new power party also questioned Tsai's speech at the opening ceremony of the locations, arguing that its focus defeated the purpose of the government's transitional justice policies and also accusing Tsai Ing-wen of downplaying Jiang Qingguo's authoritarian government. Now, the park and library are run by the Jiang Qingguo Foundation for International Scholarly Exchange, and the foundation also came under fire this week as one of its board members is Academia Sinica's Lawrence Liu, who served as president of the Chinese University of Hong Kong and was also a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. So, Donovan, bit of controversy over Jung Jing Guo's library and park and sighing when, of course, going out and calling for unity when some people went, hold on their hoss. Yeah, I thought this was very, very interesting. Now, I mean, it, something that has started to happen, I think, under the DPP, and I, I've been writing some articles on this recently, is that what she's done is she's moved the DPP smack dab into the center of where Taiwan Taiwan's public is, uh, where their opinion is, on quite a few different issues. Um, it, it, obviously, in sovereignty, they've moved right into the, into the center there. Uh, you know, Taiwan is an independent, uh, her whole uh, Republic of China, Taiwan formulation, uh, her view that Taiwan is an independent, sovereign nation already. Um, and so what she's done is she's moving the DPP and essentially co-opting the center. Now, she's doing this as well, where essentially she's, she started absorbing Taiwan's post-1949 history. If you remember in her second inaugural, she talked about the last 70 years of the ROC, and so what she did is when she delivered that speech, that was 1950, would have been 70 years before that. So she seems to be referring to either the, the moving, movement of the capital of the Republic of China to Taipei in 1949 and or the Treaty of San Francisco, which was negotiated in, uh, in 1951 and agreed on, and then it was promulgated in 1952. Um, so she's done. She's done this, and now she's starting to rehabilitate Zheng Jingguo. Now, Zheng Jingguo was one of those things which the KMT, when they went out, for example, in Hanguo's presidential run last time around, that the KMT hearkens to as being a hero uh, who paved the way for democracy, the ten infrastructure projects. Um, you know, the booming economy, and they tend to hark back to that as a positive era, that he was a great guy, whereas the DPP traditionally, of course, tended to focus more on his ordering the murders of dissidents, uh, his role in the intelligence services enforcing the white terror, and those sorts of things, uh, the less 
savory side of him. So by Tsai going in and acknowledging his more positive aspects, well, she didn't, she didn't rule out or she didn't completely write off his negative sides, but she essentially, to a certain degree, is kind of, has moved, again, the party right to more of where the center of the public is, whereas traditionally it was the DPP hated him, the KMT loved him. And now she's saying that, well, you know, there were some good things about him, some bad things about him. And I think that the, the average Taiwanese has a far more nuanced opinion of Zheng Jingguo than the previous extremes of the, uh, or, or each of the two parties' previous position. And I think she's sort of broken away from the traditional DPP position and is positioning the DPP as being, once again, pretty much smack dab in, in the center there. And this has the, the effect of further marginalizing the KMT because they, this makes it harder for them to solely claim uh, Jiang Jingwu as part of their legacy. And that will move some of them to start glorifying uh, Chiang Kai-shek more and you know, other aspects of KMT history that uh, President Tsai is yet to lay claim to. Uh, but they tend to be the less savory parts of, of uh, the KMT's history. So if, from a political perspective, it's extremely shrewd, but there's also a lot of blowback in her base. Obviously, the NPP, the TPP, and a lot of uh, more deeper Greens uh, who follow a little bit more of a traditionalist line. Um, one that she herself, for example, in May 2011, she described uh, the ROC government as a colonial government. So she's moved a long way on the issue. The question is, will the rest of her party move that way? But I think she, the, she is now just with the broad center of the public. So Donovan hinting there, Angelica, that tying when could could lose support over sort of coming out and actually appearing at the opening of the library and the park dedicated to Zhang Jingguo. It depends on what you mean by support, Gavin. Actually, I think what Tsai Ing-wen did was she just gave a masterclass in how moderates can take power. Because what she did is, you know, she didn't triangulate and put herself where she thinks the voters are. Um, she appropriated. She stole the KMT's legacy. She stole. Uh, <laughs> she stole. <laughs> she stole Chiang Kai-shek's son. That should have been... Their IP, their property, their president, their figurehead, their icon, and he is quite iconic. Um, but she was only able to do this because they left that legacy undefended by pivoting to China, by cozying up to the commies uh, who Jiang Jingguo hated. Um, they left that door open for her to come in, claim the positive part of his legacy, and um, be really, really, I think, solidifying herself in the eyes of, as Donovan said, um, the middle, uh, the median Taiwanese voter. And we talk about um, the the blue KMT and the green DPP. There is also the white. And, you know, I think that would be like usually Koenja's, uh base. Uh, the people who are not that political, who just want the economy to do well. And I think uh, with this move, she has really just consolidated all those white, uh, all those like, you know, politically colored white voters and say, no, you're, you're light green. And uh, I think it's a very effective move. I think um, 
she hasn't, in my mind, discounted um, the bad part of uh, of uh, Jiang Jingguo's legacy. Uh, it's a complicated legacy. It's a really complicated time, and I while well, I understand that there are those who are in her party who might be upset. Um, I, I I think that she did the right move ultimately, and I hope that her legacy of moderation and nuance will hold. And of course, Angelica, the opening of the park and the presidential library for Chung Jingguo comes at a time when there's debate going on about what to do with the statues of his father in the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall in Taipei. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, um, they sh- <laughs> those statues really need to go. Um, they are um, kind of tacky, unsavory reminder of our authoritarian past, and maybe leave one up. As I, I, I do agree that you know you shouldn't completely erase history. You shouldn't, you know, paint over it or whatever. Um, but sure, just just leave one up and contextualize it properly. Um, but uh, no, absolutely. I think I think the Chiang Kai Shek Memorial Hall. Um, we should we should remove him and replace that with some reminders of his victims. And it should be a place that's left empty, except for the reminders of his victims on the walls. And uh, it should be a space for contemplation. I think this 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 whole situation with the Transitional Justice Commission is really quite fascinating. Um, when they came out, it, it essentially, they kind of slapped Tsai in the face by demanding the, or she slapped them in the face. It's a really a little bit hard to tell here, but there's definitely she, you know, because Tsai, of course, campaigned and then, you know, really helped make sure the Transitional Justice Commission came into being in the first place. But you'll notice that during her first term, and right after when the Transitional Justice Commission came out, uh, they set some uh, some timelines to deal with things like, you know, Chiang Kai-shek on the coinage, uh, discussing street names. There was all kinds of initiatives, and some of them had timelines, and then they all quietly disappeared, leaving them largely with much more less controversial issues. Now, they're finally talking about and going to consultations on what to do about the Chiang Kai-shek memorial. That is one, one thing, and they've been removing Chiang Kai-shek statues slowly uh, from public facilities around the country. Uh, but what happens with the Chiang Kai-shek memorial, I think the way they're handling it is really quite clever. They're going into all sorts of consultations to try and find something that will it looks like they're trying to find the least controversial option for this. So some of the possibilities are things like yeah, turning it into a place that commemorates all of Taiwan's previous pre- presidents rather than just Chiang Kai-shek, or turn it into a memorial to democracy. Or, you know, the, so these, these are all options which may be broadly popular. It's definitely going to be part of the deep blue deep blue base it's going to go nuts pretty much no matter what you do with with the Chiang Kai-shek memorial but they're now a small enough percentage of the population that I don't think that the DPP is going to take too much political harm from that but ultimately what this kind of comes down to is how they're handling it compared to say the Chen Shui-bian area where Chen sort of made all these changes by fiat at the end 
without much consultation in, you know, in his last year or so in office, tried to change all, all, all kinds of things, including the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial's name, and then it was all just rapidly undone. It wasn't a consultative process. It wasn't a deliberative, deliberative process. He just sort of ordered it, and it didn't stick, and it got a lot of blowback from a lot of people, and then Ma overturned it anyway when he took office. So I think what Tsai is hoping for here is that they come up with solutions that will last, which kind of Angelica referred to a little bit there in in her last comment. Moving on now, and lawmakers on Monday approved a bill aimed at stricter penalties for drunk drivers. Now, of course, we've talked about this before, but lawmakers have now passed said bill, which means that violators now face up to between three years and life in prison and a possible fine of up to three million NT. Now, under the revised law, authorities can also publish the names and photographs of repeat DUI offenders, as well as information about their crimes. So, Angelica, I mean, obviously, good news for people because, of course, drunk driving should not be tolerated. Drunk driving should absolutely not be tolerated. I'm glad they're um, cracking down on it. Um, I I think that traffic death in Taiwan in general is something that um, just kills so many people, takes so many lives, and I hope they don't just stop at the drunk drivers. Of course, drunk driving is terrible, and to the extent that they're cracking down on that, good, I approve. But what about the very infrastructure of the roads? Danger is baked into our intersections. Uh, We're talking about killer corners uh, where um, just making a left turn, you're you're really taking your life into your hands. And um, to me, the fact that we're not addressing that is is absolutely crazy because like before, you know, we're talking about Omicron and, you know, abundance of caution and maybe um, doing this and doing that. Well, um, I think during COVID, even with the reduced uh, traffic or whatever, still more people died on the roads. So many more people died on the roads. And uh, we need a comprehensive solution to that. Uh, Drunk driving sounds like a good start. But what we really need to do is to fix our infrastructure. Or education. Educate drivers more, Angelica, maybe. Uh, well, no, no. Again, like I said, it needs to be an integrated solution. But to me, um, I think um, putting it all on the drivers or putting it all on the pedestrians, um, uh, scooters are very vulnerable, cyclists are very vulnerable. Um, you should take a look at what's baked into our roads. And there are uh, there's a lot of good reporting, by the way. I can't remember the exact magazine, but they did um, a really good investigation of how with a lot of those intersections, it's impossible to make a turn and go where you want to go without breaking the law in the process. So what are you going to do now? Are you going to, um, are you going to punish people for uh, making a turn when there's no good way to do so without breaking, a, breaking the law? Um, I think that should be the number one priority. Of course, we can walk and chew gum. I also approve of the t- tighter measures on drunk drivers. But too often, I feel like the government blame the people and they don't look at have we set up um have we set our people up for success have we set up our drivers pedestrians and scooter users with an environment where they can they can feel safe while following the rules so donovan there change the environment and the infrastructure of course you happen to live in pothole central down there in taijong <laughs> it's not as bad as it used to be but yeah um yeah, I mean, I think Angelo's got, got a, a good point here, is that fundamentally, if your goal is to reduce traffic fatalities, 
and uh, injuries, then you know, maybe this isn't the most important area to focus on. It's an important area to focus on, but it's not the end-all and be-all. And there may be other ways that they could be looking at uh, making changes that would make Taiwan's roads safer, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, as she noted, a, a comprehensive approach to it. So it, there does often seem to be, and in this case, this is in response to yet more, you know, another drunk driving accident in Kaohsiung, I believe, this time. And it, it, a lot of it feels like it's kind of knee-jerk. Uh, we're, you know, making the government look like it's doing something when it's not really focused on on traffic safety, it's more to quell outrage over the latest incident. And at some point, I don't know if they've reached it yet, but at some point they're going to reach a point of diminishing returns, meaning that they can keep upping the penalties, but past a certain point, it, it no longer adds to the deterrent factor of people doing or not doing this behavior. Um, so you know, at some point they're going to need to address that. Plus, they really need to have some flexibility on the sentencing guidelines because there is a comp, there are complicating factors. For and one thing that they've done is they 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 implement fines on the passengers, which is quite tricky because there are a lot of cases where, for example, the Taichung City government to demonstrate the uh, the you know how a what blood level the uh, the amount of alcohol in your system needs to be to fail the test they gave people if memory serves it was like changmuya or something like that um a soup a, you know a fairly common soup that you might have at a dinner here one bowl of it with alcohol added and it was enough for most of the journalists to fail the test um and they noted that in a lot of cases, people at a banquet might have a bowl of this soup. They might not even feel like they have been drunk at all, didn't even think about it. And technically, they could be liable under these laws, even if they're not impaired in any way. There's other cases where you see people who drank the night before, and there's still some residual alcohol in their system. So again, in these kinds of cases, why are the passengers being... Uh, you know, when even the driver's unaware that they might fail the test technically, you know, it, it's, un, it, it's unreasonable to expect the passengers to. So there, I think there needs to be a, a lot of uh, flexibility and nuance on how these laws are, are actually put in, in, you know, put in practice and how the sentences are applied. Well, Donovan, I had no idea about that. In that case, let me rescind my previous support for this law. This sounds terrible. Um, if you're talking about eating a bowl of soup and uh, not being able to pass the test, then I don't think this is reasonable at all. And I think with laws that strict, what you're going to have is patchy enforcement because there is no way that anybody who drank the night before or had a bowl of soup um, should would refrain from driving 100% of the time. And um, if you, you, again, I feel like this is a case where the government is setting the people up for failure. Uh, but I don't agree with you, Donovan, about how there need to be flexibility in enforcement, because I think that's a real problem for this country, flexibility in enforcement. We need to have laws that are reasonable in the first place. 
and then aim for maximum consistency in enforcing those laws. There's there are studies about this. Uh, compliance is the best when not when the penalties are the harshest, but uh, when they are consistently applied. So um, in that case, I, I would say. Um, the lawmakers need to seriously look at how they came up with those standards for what defines drunk driving. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today in the studio by Angelica Ong. A pleasure as always, Gavin. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a show next Friday, that being February the 4th, as it's the Lunar New Year holiday and no one will be here. But don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.